You're listening to a reading of the book Disrupting Mercy by Matthew C. Clarke and Annabella Rossini Clarke. The book was published in 2022 and this reading is being distributed as a series of podcasts narrated by the author Matthew Clarke. Footnotes and bracketed references to verses in the Bible have mostly been omitted to make the reading flow more conversational. I assume if you want to study the fine details, you'll read either the printed or the e-book versions, which are available from many online booksellers, including Amazon. Biblical quotes are nearly all taken from the New Revised Standard Version. Chapter 11. Obstructions to Mercy An initial thought to ponder. In an underground shelter in Cologne, where Jews hid during World War II, these words were written on the wall. I believe in the sun, though it be dark. I believe in God, though he be silent. I believe in neighbourly love, though it be unable to reveal itself. What might mercy have looked like in those dark days? Despite the great power of mercy, its transformative potential is not always realised. Mercy is often withheld or obstructed in some way, and even when mercy is offered, it can be ignored, misused or rejected. When the intended or hoped-for outcome of mercy is obstructed, does that mean mercy has failed? The question can be considered from two perspectives, from the side of those who show mercy and from the side of those who are shown mercy. Subheading. Failure to launch. The largest failure of mercy is that it is so rarely offered. Although a society without mercy is unsustainable, the project of mercy often does not even get off the ground. However, this reflects a failure of imagination or will, rather than a failure of mercy itself. My definition of mercy, a gift of extreme kindness motivated by compassion, implies several potential obstructions to the expression of mercy. Perhaps there is a lack of compassion, perhaps a feeling of powerlessness or a lack of imagination about how to respond compassionately, perhaps a reluctance to get involved, especially if the potential recipient is outside family or tribe. Another reason for the scarcity of mercy is that people may not have seen compelling examples of mercy nor been taught about its value. As a result, mercy can seem naive or impractical. Even worse, many people live without ever experiencing mercy, and may be unable to conceive of the possibility of showing mercy themselves. The pervasiveness of counterexamples, teaching about rewards and punishment, and beliefs about getting what we deserve, make us ignorant as a society about the deep moral significance and interpersonal nourishment of mercy. Coming from a different angle, there are some people who seem unable to give without strings attached. They may be moved by compassion to act kindly, but feel it is only right that the recipient do something first to deserve it, or do something later to repay it. Jonah is a biblical example, as is the elder brother in the parable of the loving father, also called the parable of the prodigal son. They are both called to join in with a celebration, but both complain against mercy. Others act with extreme kindness, but feel compelled to do so out of duty. In those instances, 
Kindness is offered to someone in need, but in a way that seems to have missed the essence of mercy. I think another barrier to many people's ability to show mercy to others is a shortage of love for themselves. Mercy overflows from belovedness. From the fullness of grace and truth in Christ we have all received grace upon grace, and our gratitude for that grace overflows in mercy to others. But what of those who do not experience that grace, from God or from the significant others in their lives? When Jesus describes the commandment to love others as we love ourselves, he assumes that we love ourselves. When that assumption is not true, when someone thinks of themselves as unloved or unlovable, both receiving and expressing mercy become all but impossible. Shame can act in a similar way. One of the facilitators of the Restore program commented that, quote, shame is a compassion killer, end of quote. Shame, especially unacknowledged shame, can quash empathy and compassion, and without compassion there can be no mercy. A deeper understanding of our reluctance to show mercy, whether that reluctance be conscious or unconscious, comes from Richard Beck's analysis of the psychology of disgust in his 2011 book Unclean, Meditations on Purity, Hospitality and Mortality. At the root of the book Unclean, is a commentary on Jesus' interaction with some Pharisees, recounted in Matthew 9, in the context of a dispute over whether a religious teacher ought to eat with, quote, tax collectors and sinners, end quote, Jesus challenges the Pharisees to learn what God meant by the declaration, quote, I desire mercy, not sacrifice. That's Hosea 6.6. 6. Beck sees in this confrontation a call to rethink the Pharisees' understanding of purity. The academic literature on which Beck draws links the will to maintain purity with universal psychological aspects of disgust. At its core, disgust arises from violations of bodily boundaries. A simple example is the reaction to saliva. When it's in your mouth, everything is fine. But if you spat it into a cup of water, would you then drink that water? We feel disgusted by bodily fluids when they are outside of our body. Saliva, blood and urine are repulsive and dirty as soon as they leave our bodies, and anything that touches them is contaminated. Disgust motivates us to avoid such things, to push them away so that impurities do not cross the boundary into our bodies. Although disgust can sometimes protect us from real dangers, reactions based on disgust are often illogical. Would you, for instance, drink lemonade from a sterilised bedpan that had never been used before? Probably not. But why would we be reluctant to do that? Although we know intellectually that the bedpan is clean, at an emotional level, the association with urine still seems to contaminate the lemonade. This core bodily aspect of disgust frequently becomes a metaphor in other areas of life. We hear that cleanliness is next to godliness, and conversely think of evil people as being in the gutter, dirty, the scum of the earth. Swear words are often based on bodily functions. Our sins can be washed clean. Someone's offensive behaviour makes us want to vomit. Our reactions to bodily disgust are reflected in socio-moral contexts as well. We erect boundary protections around our tribe and feel disgust at aspects of other cultures. We may believe they smell bad, they are dirty, or they don't follow basic good manners. 
Consequently, we have good reason to separate ourselves from them. That socio-moral sense of disgust is what drives the Pharisees' attitudes in Matthew 9. A quote from Beck, The Pharisees, seeking purity, pull away from the sinners, whereas Jesus, seeking fellowship, moves towards the sinners. And another quote, Sacrifice, the purity impulse, marks off a zone of holiness, admitting the clean and expelling the unclean. Mercy, by contrast, crosses those purity boundaries. Mercy blurs the distinction, bringing clean and unclean into contact. End of quote. Beck's central argument is that, quote, the psychology of disgust and contamination regulates how many Christians reason with and experience notions of holiness, atonement, and sin, end of quote. I would add that disgust and contamination often act as barriers to mercy. Disgust encourages us to treat certain acts and certain people with contempt. Serial killers, child abusers, drug dealers and others are cast as unworthy monsters who do not deserve mercy. Those are extreme cases, but whenever we are disgusted with someone or their behaviour, choosing to show them mercy becomes harder. This tendency has been noted by others in the context of sex offenders, and we frequently see it in people's attitudes towards human traffickers. The focus of our anti-slavery project has been to challenge assumptions about the perpetrators of slavery within the anti-slavery movement. We hear about the extremes of abuse imposed by human traffickers on their victims, the manipulation and deliberate grooming of vulnerable children for sex, multi-generational debt bondage in rock quarries, violent indoctrination of child soldiers, young girls forced into marriage, and the savage treatment of those who try to escape. Such horrific physical, psychological, and sexual abuse rightly shocks and disgusts us. In the absence of sufficient data about the demographics of traffickers or their personal histories, we have little understanding of the external drivers or internal motivations that lead to their actions. Since few of us meet human traffickers face-to-face -face or engage with them as real people, it is easy to view them as monsters. One problem with this reaction to horrendously abusive behaviours is that our disgust can be based on significant misunderstandings. If we knew the traffickers and the survivors of their abuse as real people rather than as stereotypes, we might find that the situation is more complex. We might find backstories that help us to understand, and without reducing our condemnation of the abuse, that might reduce the extent of our disgust. We might find that the trafficker has been nominated as a scapegoat to take the fall for what is essentially a systemic social problem. This example from modern slavery suggests two avenues for dealing with socio-moral disgust. After seeking to understand the, quote, monsters as real people, we may find that our visceral disgust dissolves and we become more able to show those people mercy. On the other hand, we may find that our disgust continues, in which case we face the greater challenge of finding a way to show mercy even though we are disgusted. I know this example straddles a tricky boundary, and I need to stress that I am not advocating that we allow or condone the kind of abuses that occur in modern slavery nor am I defending traffickers, minimising their responsibility as free moral agents, whitewashing over their guilt, or ignoring the fundamental injustice of their crimes. 
My point is that this disgust is not a sufficient reason to suspend mercy, though in practice many people allow that to be the case. Even if someone turns out to be a moral monster, mercy can be shown to them. This is a corollary of my earlier argument that mercy does not depend on desert. We show mercy not because someone deserves it, nor because we expect them to meet any pre- or post-condition, moral or otherwise, but because it promotes the higher values of justice and shalom. That higher goal of justice for all, incorporating the restoration of shalom, necessitates that something changes within a perpetrator of modern slavery. The injustice is not resolved by rescuing the victim and punishing the perpetrator, but by dealing with the brokenness of both parties and by making systemic changes so that all may flourish. I'm not suggesting that victims of abuse should not be rescued or that perpetrators of abuse should not be punished, but that the gospel intention of reconciling all things is something greater than what a rescue and punish paradigm can achieve. And mercy is the fundamental path toward that greater goal. Can we reach a point where, as Beck writes, quote, the dignity of every human person is vouchsafed, embraced, and protected deep within the heart of the church? End of quote. The word every must be interpreted as truly universal, not limited to our tribe, to good people, and to victims, but to all so-called others outside our tribe, even those morally repugnant to us, even child sex abusers and human traffickers. All of us are unconditionally loved by God. All of us need mercy. A further aspect of the psychology of disgust that can prevent people from acting mercifully is the fear of contamination. By showing mercy to someone, might we not get into some sort of trouble ourselves? That thought may have been in the mind of the priest and the Levite who passed by the beaten man in the story of the Good Samaritan. If we show mercy to lepers, whether that leprosy be literal or metaphorical, might we not become infected with their leprosy? If we show mercy to a sinner, might we not be seen as approving of their behaviour? As Beck notes, our beliefs about contamination display a negativity dominance. Quote, when a pollutant and a pure object come into contact, the pollutant is stronger and ruins the pure object. End of quote. As a result, many religious people live defensively to avoid any guilt by association. That is what the Pharisees advised Jesus in relation to eating with so-called tax collectors and sinners. But Jesus lived with an open-handedness that was the opposite of defensiveness. He touched lepers and dead bodies and menstruating women and allowed a sinful woman to wash his feet, all with apparently no fear that they were going to contaminate him with their, quote, unholiness. In line with the practice of Jesus, mercy refutes negativity dominance. The life-giving potential of mercy is that it can disinfect and transform sin, bondage, and exile. Rather than mercy being tainted through interactions with those varied forms of brokenness, it acts with positivity dominance, as a catalyst for redemption. The compassion that impels mercy can be the emotional counterpoint to disgust. Developing compassion for someone else can ease our disgust at their actions. Micah's insistence on humility is also important. In humility, we realise that we are not superior to the people who disgust us. When we acknowledge our own culpability and recognise our own need of mercy, 
we can approach disgust as peers rather than as judges or rescuers. Neither our disgust nor our fear of contamination should prevent us showing mercy. The combination of compassion and humility enables us to show mercy even in the face of personal disgust. The pharisaical drive toward purity arises from disgust and results in exclusion. In contrast, the way of Jesus puts disgust aside and shows mercy to all. Subheading, Failure to Land Having noted that mercy too often does not even get off the ground because people are unwilling or unable to show true mercy, I now consider various ways that the trajectory of mercy, once launched, might not land where it was intended. My definition of mercy is deliberately one-sided, claiming that mercy is a free gift of extreme kindness motivated by compassion, positions mercy as an act of the giver with no reference to the way it might or might not be received. If mercy is non-conditional, how could it be otherwise? If the definition of mercy were to imply any expectation about how the gift is received, that would become a condition. But no, we, and God, give with an attitude that is independent of any response or lack of response. This does not mean that we are unconcerned about the response to the gift of mercy. We hope that the gift will nourish the recipient. We hope that the gift will be a blessing that eases their suffering. We hope that the recipient's own life might be transformed by grace so that the love of God would overflow from them toward others. Beyond simply hoping, we are committed to trying our best to act authentically and helpfully through our mercy. The act of mercy, however, is independent of whether such hopes become reality. The gift is not contingent on any precondition, nor on any subsequent response. That approach, however, means that in various ways the gift of mercy might not be received in the way the giver hoped. In the first place, perhaps the giver misread the situation. The compassion motivating the gift may have been misdirected. The person being shown mercy might not be in any suffering or need at all. Such misunderstandings of the context or of the recipient, however well-intentioned, could be relationally awkward, insulting, or paternalistic. Such misreadings could create a victim-rescuer dynamic that exacerbates a power imbalance or extends a form of unhealthy dependence. In some cases, the person to whom mercy is shown may remain oblivious to the gift. They may not see the gift at all, or see it, but never unwrap it. They may consider what was done for them to be a payment owed to them, or as something that was rightfully theirs all along, in which case they recognize the act, but they do not recognize it as a gift. In other cases, the recipient may refuse the gift of mercy. Perhaps it smells like a trap. Their previous experiences may have demonstrated that there is always a catch, making them suspicious of any free gift. Perhaps accepting mercy would imply an unwelcome admission of need. As I discussed in Chapter 7, perhaps mercy is refused by a person who does not believe they are worthy of it. In yet other cases, people may accept the gift and yet despise the giver. There is no guarantee that the receiver will respond with gratitude, as we saw in the story of Dirk Willems. Although he rescued the thief-catcher who fell through the ice, the thief-catcher still arrested Willems and returned him to prison. The act of mercy toward the thief-catcher certainly did not rebound in a blessing to Willems. 
though we are left wondering what the long-term effect might have been on the thief-catcher. I'm sure there are people who would soak up any gift of mercy and scheme how to get even more. People who seem to take advantage of mercy pose a huge challenge to our posture. What do we do if, after showing extreme kindness to someone, they lap it up, continue unchanged, perhaps repeating the destructive behaviours that led to their broken situation, and in the worst case, actively seek further mercy? How many times can we show mercy before accepting that it is not working and giving up? Seven times? That is exactly the question Peter asked Jesus. But Jesus replied, not seven, but seventy-seven. It was in this context that Jesus told the so-called parable of the unmerciful servant, or unforgiving servant. In the parable, the massive debt of a king's servant is waived, a surprisingly generous gift arising from the king's compassion, but the servant refuses to waive the debt of a colleague that amounts to lunch money in comparison. The extravagant mercy of the king fails to land. We are not told why the servant did not respond in kind. He now owed nothing, and so it was not that he needed his colleague to pay up for any financial reason. Perhaps he was jaded, hardened, greedy, deeply insecure, or just plain mean. Perhaps the king's pardon was too extravagant for him to understand. He might have gone away feeling disdainful of the king's foolishness. Perhaps transactional thinking was so firmly rooted in his psyche that he could not imagine relating to others on the basis of mercy. In any case, the outcome of the servant's inability to break free from the shackles of debt thinking was that he was handed over to be tortured until he paid his debt. Commentators on this section of Matthew's Gospel generally fail to explain how the parable supports Jesus' initial claim that we should forgive someone not seven times, but seventy-seven times. What are we to make of the final torture and Jesus' conclusion that, quote, So my heavenly Father will also do to every one of you, if you do not forgive your brother and sister from your heart? End of quote. I must admit to being a bit confused myself. How does the king's and God's decision to withhold forgiveness and hand over someone to torture illustrate Jesus' instructions to forgive 77 times? As with many of the parables, we must realize that the language used is hyperbolic, that is, extremely exaggerated. From the start, the idea of forgiving a person 77 times, or some translations even say 70 times 7, implies a huge number beyond what one could keep track of. And then, in the parable, the servant's debt to the king is unimaginably large, a zillion dollars, 150,000 times the annual wage for a labourer, an outrageous debt that could never be repaid. Jesus' primary reason for this use of exaggeration is that when he says we should forgive someone 77 times, he's not defining some fixed limit. 77 times means mercy without end. This comes as no surprise to those who know the steadfast love, chesed, of the Lord never ceases. His mercies, racham, never come to an end. They are new every morning. New every morning. Mercy is not a transactional account-keeping of either the extent of a debt or the number of times a person is forgiven. Rather, as Matthew 18.35 shows, the important factor is that we forgive each other from the heart. Nevertheless, the parable accepts that sometimes even outrageous mercy does not turn the heart of the recipient. The story spotlights 
a relational, compassionate, non-transactional king who is angered when the servant continues to think transactionally. Torture until an unrepayable debt is repaid is itself hyperbolic. We would do the disruptive intent of the story more justice if we imagined the voice of the king saying to the unmerciful servant, quote, You want to be transactional? Let me show you the outcome of being transactional. End of quote. Transactional thinking, devoid of mercy, leads inevitably to infinite loss. In saying that, I'm not trying to explain away a difficult piece of scripture. The torture can be very real to people who, when shown mercy, cannot soak up its scandalous intention and who consequently remain unable to show mercy to others. Mercy does triumph over judgment, but nevertheless when someone is unable to show mercy, they also become unable to receive mercy. By failing to be transformed by the mercy shown to them, they remain trapped in debt thinking, bound by cynicism, and unable to flourish. Subheading, Javert. I was once asked, what is the opposite of mercy? That is a tricky question. I've already argued that mercy is not in opposition to justice, so one should not imagine a line with mercy at one end of the continuum and justice at the other end. In fact, giving such an imagined line, I cannot identify what would be at the opposite end from mercy. This one-dimensional way of thinking does not apply in any helpful way to mercy. The first century Roman Seneca proposed that the opposite of mercy was cruelty, while more recently Reniero Cantalamessa suggested vengeance, and Jordan Peterson poetically suggested contempt. Annabella wonders if it is despair. Each adds something important to the conversation. To withhold mercy is often cruel because that allows the other's pain, loss, guilt, suffering to continue. On the other hand, as Nietzsche might observe, to remove someone's suffering may be just pity, which is another form of contempt. Not acting to remove their suffering may sometimes be the merciful choice if it genuinely promotes their ability to overcome the challenge themselves. Vengeance goes further and actively increases their suffering. To hold someone in contempt is to refuse to acknowledge their value or their dignity, to look down on them with disgust, to dismissively sneer at them because their suffering is their own fault and of no concern to me. Those attitudes are certainly contrary to mercy, but I'm not sure that any of them are mercy's opposite. Another way of thinking about the question is to consider what would be left if mercy were taken away. What would a life devoid of mercy look like? That's the context in which the dark weed of despair strangles hope. The character of Javert in Les Miserables provides a perfect example not only of cruelty but also of the internal disillusionment that inevitably grows when mercy is absent. Recall that Javert was the police inspector who knew Jean Valjean as a prisoner and who could never imagine him otherwise. After Valjean broke his parole and went into hiding, Javert pursued him for the rest of their lives. Javert, quote, was a compound of two sentiments simple and good in themselves, but he made them almost evil by his exaggeration of them. Respect for authority and hatred of rebellion. He had nothing but disdain for, aversion and disgust for all who had once overstepped the bounds of law. He was absolute, admitting no exceptions. End of quote. 
Javert was harsh and unyielding, with an absolute commitment to the simplicity and clarity of the law, regardless of whether applying the law reflected true justice. Interestingly, Hugo tells us that Javert was born in prison and, quote, grew up thinking himself outside of society and despaired of ever entering it, end of quote. Although an officer of the law, he was, metaphorically, imprisoned by the law. The law constrained his behaviour, absolutely. Perhaps the young Javert was never shown mercy. He had no intention of showing mercy to anyone, including himself. Two acts of clemency to Javert later in life disrupt his confidence. The first is an act of justice toward him, although Javert is unable to see it that way, while the second is an act of mercy. Javert's reaction to both incidents reveal the inevitable result of a life that denies mercy. In the first incident, Jean Valjean has been living under the pseudonym Madeleine, has become commercially successful, and is now the mayor of Montreal-Sumur. Javert is the police officer in that same town and comes to suspect that the mayor is in fact Valjean. He reports his suspicions to the prefecture of police in Paris, but is told that it's impossible since Valjean has recently been arrested and is currently standing trial. The Honourable Javert admits his fault to the mayor, who is actually Valjean, and demands that the mayor sack him in disgrace. The mayor responds, quote, Javert, you are a man of honour and I esteem you. You exaggerate your fault. Beside, this is an offence that concerns only me. You deserve promotion, not disgrace. I want you to keep your job. End of quote. Valjean's reaction to the mercy of Bishop Muriel has been to craft a new life that exhibits a constant posture of mercy. He feels no bitterness towards Javert, and his conscience dictates that Javert deserves no retribution, even though he knows Javert would demand his death if he could prove that he was indeed the escaped convict Valjean. This act of clemency in refusing to dismiss Javert is really an act of justice, given that Javert was correct in his suspicion, but of course it did not look that way to Javert. Javert cannot accept the clemency. Quote, in my life I have often been severe toward others. It was just. I was right. And now, if I were not severe toward myself, all I have justly done would become injustice. Should I spare myself more than others? No. You see? If I had been eager only to punish others and not myself, that would have been despicable. Those who say, that scoundrel Javert, would be right. Monsieur Maire, I do not wish you to treat me with kindness. Your kindness, when it was for others, enraged me quite enough. I do not wish it for myself. Such kindness disorganizes society. Good God, it is easy to be kind. The difficulty is to be just. End of quote. One thing to notice about Javert is that although he is unable to give or receive mercy, he is not morally corrupt. On the contrary, he is the most respectable and principled of characters, seeking above all to be irreproachable. He is the quintessential conscientious upholder of law. Through a second major experience of mercy, Hugo shows how this moral rigidity is a flaw that leads to Javert's ultimate unravelling. The problem begins when Valjean spares Javert's life. Javert has been spying on the rebels at a makeshift barricade in the streets of Paris. When he is identified as a police officer, the rebels decide to kill him. Valjean asks to be the one to shoot him. In a chapter headed, Jean Valjean Takes His Revenge, 
Valjean cuts Javert's ropes, tells him to leave, and shoots his pistol into the air so that the other rebels think Javert has been shot. Valjean does not wait for any repentance. He has no expectation of future reward because he thinks he will die with the rebels that very night. He says simply, you are free. This free gift of life is an act of mercy, a strange form of revenge that resonates with Paul's advice in Romans 12. Now things get complicated. Valjean does in fact escape from the barricade, carrying a wounded rebel who is the beloved of his adopted daughter through Paris' network of sewers. Just as he finds an exit from the sewer, he is confronted by Javert. He begs Javert to allow him time to deliver the wounded man to medical care and to get a message to his daughter. He promises that after that he will allow Javert to arrest him. Surprisingly, Javert agrees, and even provides transport. Then, when Valjean enters the house where his daughter is asleep, Javert leaves. Having sought Valjean for so many years, and now having him in his grasp, he lets him go. Is this a change of heart in response to Valjean saving his life? Javert walks with his head down for the first time in his life. He is in torment. Astonished that Valjean spared his life, and petrified because he, Javert, had spared Valjean. Javert's thinking had always been unidirectional. He knew what should be done and did it. There was no ambiguity and no option. He had never been lenient on either himself or others, nor had he expected leniency. But now he had sacrificed his duty by allowing Valjean to go free. For Javert, there were now only three options. He could go back and arrest Valjean, but how could he do that to the man who had saved him? That would make him a lower man than Valjean. It would be a dishonour to himself. Alternatively, he could leave Valjean a free man, but then he would be denying the right of law that he had upheld all his life. That also would dishonour himself. He could do neither. Javert recalled the previous kindness of Valjean, and he felt an admiration for Valjean. But how can one justify admiration for a convict? Quote, Jean Valjean confused him. All the axioms that had served as the supports of his life crumbled away before this man. Jean Valjean's generosity towards him, Javert, overwhelmed him. A beneficent malefactor, a compassionate convict, kind, helpful, clement, returning good for evil, returning pardon for hatred, loving pity rather than vengeance, preferring to destroy himself rather than destroy his enemy, saving the one who had struck him, kneeling on the heights of virtue, nearer angels than men. Javert was compelled to acknowledge that this monster existed. This could not go on. End of quote. Such a monster was anathema to all Javert had built his life on. Consequently, quote, his ultimate anguish was the loss of all certainty. End of quote. He understood that Valjean was right and he was wrong, that duty to the law was not the ultimate virtue. He understood that what he previously thought was monstrous might actually be divine. He not only recognized Valjean's kindness, but also knew that he himself had now been corrupted. He had acted with kindness toward Valjean. Since the two options of arresting Valjean, or setting him free, were equally impossible for Javert, he acted on the third option. He cast himself into the turmoil of the Seine in a deliberate act of suicide. 
Javert's struggle illustrates some of the reasons I discussed about how mercy might fail to land. He is unable to forgive himself or be lenient to himself. He is unable to accept kindness from others when he feels he does not deserve it. Javert's suicide bears some similarities to the death of Judas. According to Matthew's account, after betraying Jesus for thirty pieces of silver, Judas repented, that is, he changed his mind, and sought absolution from the chief priests and elders. When they denied him, his despair led to suicide. What Javert saw in Valjean, Judas had experienced in Jesus, and the contrast to their own behaviour horrified them. The life of Peter could have ended the same way. He too betrayed Jesus and struggled with the anguish of shame. What enabled him to survive that shame and despair long enough to hear and receive mercy from the resurrected Jesus? What would have happened if Judas had lived a few days longer? Suicide may seem to be the ultimate failure of mercy, and yet did not Javert in the end recognise Valjean's mercy for what it truly was? His excuses and pride were stripped away, and he was forced to confront the truth about himself. He could no longer hide from the mercy Valjean had repeatedly shown him. On the other side of death, would he not have found himself face to face with more mercy from God? Subheading Mercy in the Light of Failure The primary aim of this book is to encourage people, especially those who follow Jesus, to develop a posture that loves mercy. But what are we to do in the face of mercy's frequent failures to launch, and the many ways mercy can fail to land as hoped? A risk-based calculus might weigh the costs and benefits to arrive at some utilitarian conclusion. I can imagine lengthy arguments from both sides. On the one hand, mercy has a huge upside. It can bless and transform, bringing joy and nourishment to both the giver and receiver. On the other hand, it has a huge downside. Its intention can be obstructed in so many ways. It can cost the giver dearly, and in the end simply reinforce the plight of the intended recipient. So what are the likelihood and consequence of the possible outcomes? Can the costs be contained and the risks mitigated? In the end, however, our commitment to mercy cannot hinge on a risk calculation. Since mercy is non-conditional, mercy allows itself to misfire, to be ignored, rejected, and taken advantage of. That is the risk love takes, the risk God continually takes. Martin Luther used the term lost love to characterize the kind of love God has for us, a love that is, quote, poured out in unstinting measure upon all, even those who ultimately reject it, end of quote. Mercy hopes for something extraordinary, for individual transformation, for a society in which all can flourish, for true shalom. But the performance of mercy does not depend on achieving those outcomes. Mercy is not goal-oriented, and its success cannot be measured by whether it attains any goal. Mercy is impelled by compassion, not driven by achievement. We are merciful because of the example and instructions of Jesus, whose being for others was the ultimate free gift of extreme kindness, and who asked those who follow him to be merciful just as your Father is merciful. We are merciful because it is at the heart of the gospel's power to transform. We are merciful because we love it. Mercy has become, or at least is becoming, our default posture. I want to emphasize this aspect of becoming. Both my understanding of mercy and my ability to act mercifully 
are imperfect and under construction. Both understanding and action need, and will continue to need, improvement. Learning better ways to show mercy is an important step. Our early attempts can easily be confounded by mixed motives, misdirected by inadequate and self-centred understandings of other people, clumsy in execution, and embarrassingly patronising. No wonder Micah coupled the love of mercy with the need for humility. Hopefully people will show mercy to our ill-conceived attempts at mercy. Over time, we can learn to give in a way that is truly and consistently free from conditions. We might need to listen, act with kindness, forgive and show mercy many times before the recipient trusts our intention. We continue doing those things even if they are never understood. The best we might hope for in some contexts is that mercy confuses people. That was its chief effect on Javert. But do not underestimate the value of confusion. Mercy is meant to be disruptive. It is above and beyond what is expected. It is a higher form of justice than people are used to. It is non-transactional and non-conditional. In all those aspects, it is subversive, implicitly calling into question many of the accepted norms of our world. In some cases, confusion may be mercy's primary outcome. The greatest gift may not be the way an individual act of mercy addresses the immediate contextual need, but the residual questions mercy raises about why such extreme kindness was shown, why the gift was free, whether such kindness is deserved, and what life might look like if the new relational norm was devoid of conditions and debt. Subheading something to consider. Have you seen situations where mercy was obstructed? What was the obstruction? Do those situations make you doubt the value of mercy? This chapter of Disrupting Mercy has been narrated by Matthew C. Clarke. Other chapters are also available from the usual podcast distributors. You can also find them along with more details about the authors at turningteardropsintojoy.com. If you'd like to join a discussion about the book and share your own experiences of mercy, search for the Disrupting Mercy group on Facebook.